There are many birds here that are called barnacles, which nature, acting against her own laws, produces in a wonderful way. They are like marsh geese, but smaller. At first they appear as excrescences on fur logs carried down upon the waters. Then they hang by their beaks from what seems like seaweed clinging to the log, while their bodies, to allow for their more unimpeded development, are enclosed in shells. And so, in the course of time, having put on a stout covering of feathers, they either slip into the water or take themselves in flight to the freedom of the air. They take their food and nourishment from the juice of wood and water during their mysterious and remarkable generation. I myself have seen many times and with my own eyes more than a thousand of these small bird-like creatures hanging from a single log upon the seashore. They were in their shells and already formed. No eggs are laid as is usual as a result of mating. No bird ever sits upon the eggs to hatch them and in no corner of the land will you see them breeding or breeding nests. Accordingly, in some parts of Ireland, bishops and religious men eat them without sin during a fasting time, regarding them as not being flesh since they were not born of flesh. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. Today, our topic is, well, is it barnacle geese or goose barnacles? That's the question. And here to help us tease out that distinction, we have... Professor Alex Bovey from the Quartod Institute of Art, where she is Dean, Deputy Director, and Head of Research. And I'm just uh, so glad to have you here on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about the barnacle goose and the goose barnacle. Okay, so I come to this whole topic from the perspective of the barnacle. I mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know why, and I can't really help it, and I know it's ridiculous, but barnacles are up there with raccoons for my favorite animal, and I think it's just because I am not living in an intertidal zone now, and I grew up in one on the west coast of Canada. So anyway, the topic that we're talking about has birds in it, but really, I'm interested in the barnacle, um, So for what it's worth. So the passage that we started with is from Gerald of Wales's History and Topography of Ireland, where he describes many, many wonders in on the island of Ireland. And among them are what he describes as a kind of bird, the barnacle goose, that has this wondrous and mysterious generative process that begins with what we would identify as gooseneck barnacles. And he observes their egg-like shells and like other people before him interprets them as a kind of unusual egg that when it hatches turns into the bird that we would recognize today as the barnacle goose and the relationship between the barnacle goose and the gooseneck barnacle is completely fascinating to me but I'm just gonna admit it's a little bit niche I get teased quite a bit <laughs> about my love for the barnacle. 
Well, I, I've been following you on Instagram and your your um, watercolors of various intertidal zone creatures are, are fantastic, but also appeal to my own sort of background as a child of the American Pacific Northwest. So I recognize the fascination that these sort of weird otherworldly creatures exercise. I mean, there's a thousand types of barnacles. Uh, you know, there it's a it's a big and very ancient type of animal that evolved about 500 million years ago. In fact, the oldest ones ever found, to my knowledge, um, were found in the Burgess Shale in mm. the Rocky Mountains. In I guess in the boundary between British Columbia and Alberta, and uh, there evidence that. There were barnacles in the kind of mid-Cambrian period, so about 500 million years ago, which helps to account for their great variety and distribution around the world. Um, and maybe also something about their, you know, their, it's quite fun. I mean, you guys are do this all the time, but and so you'll know better than most. It's fascinating tracking a single species over of its encounter with the human species over a long period of time. And barnacles turn out to play a significant role in intellectual history and in and, and maybe a minor role, but an interesting one in art history as well. So I tried to get this in I tried to get it trending on the internet. Hashtag art history of the barnacle. And I just couldn't make it happen. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it, though, Alexa. You might be the only one. I lost followers. Every time I posted another episode in my art, hashtag art history of the barnacle, I would lose followers. So, so what, what to you is the most significant medieval or early modern hashtag art history of the barnacle? I feel very alone on the internet with this. I tried to get hashtag stop trying to make barnacles happen trending as well there it's not a community it's it's like me talking to myself it you know it's like is this thing on but um you know although there is there there are some eco historians who, who i think appreciate the effort but um but it, you know it's it is quite challenging constructing a visual history of the barnacle and a, a really major part of the early story of the art history of the barnacle is is connected with Gerald of Wales. He um, he produced this um, history and topography of Ireland, and there's quite an early manuscript which there's a certain amount of debate about it, but could be Gerald's own autograph, and he may well have illustrated it himself. Um, and it has a kind of uh, a kind of fascinating picture of a tree with um, with kind of. I don't know, like, uh, yeah, barnacle-like, gooseneck barnacle-like creatures dangling from it with a sort of egg-like, uh, <laughs> egg-like appearance. That's a terrible description. I apologize. So it seems like there's maybe some confusion on the even on the barnacle side. There's a kind of a confusion between, you know, what we would call plants and what we would call animals, and and also between. What we would see is the barnacle and the barnacle substrate, you know, like a branch or like a, you know, a dock piling, a piece of a ship, whatever it is, so that you can, you could sort of see this all sort of blending together. Uh, and I wondered if that 
that those kind of confusion of uh, what we would see as different categories is one of the kind of typical barnacle things that you see occurring. That is really interesting. So barnacles have many of the qualities of stone within their shells, especially, so I mentioned there's a thousand types of barnacle. They've fought, there are two kind of major types. One is the acorn barnacle, which is probably the most familiar. It looks like a little stone volcano, <laughs> you know? And the other, which is the kind that, that Gerald is writing about, is a gooseneck barnacle, which has a, a stock that's affixed to the substrate with its plates arranged in, I think, a rather beautiful manner in what, if you imagine, like is a kind of egg-like shape. So there's some material confusions, I suppose, in that barnacles look and feel like stone in many ways, and yet are obviously animals. And and they're obviously so if you sit quietly, they're very sensitive to vibrations. But if you sit very, very quietly at the seashore, as I am want to do whenever I get the opportunity in a rising tide there they'll unfurl their legs and um, and use them to filter the water where they catch plankton and other nutrients and then zap it back into into their mouths I think Ian you're right like the the confusion about what are they are they animal vegetable mineral is one of those kind of boundary confusions that fascinated medieval people. So, But the really interesting thing is, in Gerald's stories, he recognizes that it's completely nuts that you would have a barnacle that turns into a bird. And yet he's kind of content to say, well, I've you know seen a certain amount of this with my own eyes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But what he's saying he has observed with his own eyes is something you can observe. I mean, that barnacles grow... On a variety of supports, they grow on stone, of course, but they also grow on the hulls of ships, on floating branches. I think he's talking about that. Um, You'll see them even growing on other living creatures. They'll grow on the back of a crab or on a whale. Is that present in any of the sort of medieval accounts of the barnacle? Not that I not like not that I've been able to find. I mean, on you know, like a lot of medieval people writing about animals. On one level, he's not really that interested in the natural history. And to see him as a kind of protozoologist or something is, I think, to misunderstand his project, which is to describe wonders. And I mean, it's and his writing project is part of a a, a colonial project to to kind of sell and justify Ireland as a as a colonial possession of um, the English crown. And and so when he's writing this text, he's not really like he's really not trying to explain the plants and animals of Ireland like a botanist or a biologist would. He's trying to say this is a place of fantastical, unimaginable wonders. You should come and visit and then conquer it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that seems to be a bit of a theme in um, in animal lore from the Middle Ages that these sort of exotic creatures are part of the allure of these othered territories, whether it's Ireland or the far north or above all the far east. It's so often the far east that it almost feels as though, you know, what we're looking at is sort of the orientalizing of Ireland, uh, you know, and that that sense of like this, because it so often comes up as a space of wonder, you know, and a a place where things, the, the rules are different. Quite so. I mean, the kind of maps of the world that Gerald and his readers would have been familiar with are great disks with Jerusalem at the center, the east at the top, and Britain right at the edge. 
along with other edgy places like the Far East and Africa. And, you know, the idea that what he's trying to do, I mean, there, there was a whole, as, a, as you know, whole kind of class of texts known as the wonders of the East. And I, I think he self-consciously models him himself on that in writing this text as a kind of wonders of the West, which, and it's interesting, I think that what he, he kind of clutches on species that are pretty familiar. I mean, there isn't that much biogenetic difference between the island of Ireland and the rest of the British archipelago. Um, but, um, but he kind of, you know, harnesses, you know, like fish that are just like the fish, you know, except for they have golden teeth or stags that are just like the stags that, you know, only they're unusually small, you know, those kinds of things. And I think his barnacle story belongs in that category, along with his desire to describe the unusual practices of the Irish. So here, the idea that they're not flesh, so can be eaten by clerics on a, on a Friday when meat is prescribed. And it's true that people tell me, and I don't know if you guys have tried barnacles, you know, it's a great delicacy, especially in Spain and Portugal and <laughs> the indigenous people of my coastline and Alexa's are, are great fishers of, of gooseneck barnacles and find them really delicious. I mean, they're meant to be like lobster, but the problem for me is I love them too much to eat them. You know, I just, yeah, you know, it's like eating your friend. Like I'd no sooner eat a barnacle than, you know, I eat my cat. This whole question of eating barnacles leads to the question of eating barnacle geese, which I find super interesting because it's one of those, it's a dietary question, right? Like, can you eat barnacle geese on a Friday? Can you eat them during Lent? That Lent. kind of thing. But it's also a question that Jewish writers from the Middle Ages engaged in. Like, are they or are they not essentially kosher? Like, do they belong? What category do they belong to if indeed they are geese that come from this barnacle generation? So clearly, even though Gerald, you know, is notoriously anti Semitic, he's talking about a way of understanding these animals that is shared across cultures because we have basically halakhic text texts from the 12th and 13th century where, where Jewish writers are saying, hmm, I don't know this animal might qualify actually as seafood, you know? Or shellfish, you know? I mean, that's so interesting. And I hadn't thought about that. I I mean, so so is the debate in the Jewish literature about whether or not it's shellfish and therefore prescribed in kind of Levitican food laws? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this idea that it might not be, whereas other geese are kosher, these geese are not. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, they're vegetarians. I recently learned this from a National Geographic video that I watched and that traumatized me because it turns out that these geese nest in these high cliffs in the Arctic to avoid predators. But then they have this problem that for whatever reason, barnacle geese can't feed their chicks in the nest like every other goose species that you've heard of. So they have to get their babies down to the grass that they eat. I won't tell you the rest because it's quite triggering. If you care about animals, it's horrific to watch. But they're migratory, right? So the, the, the barnacle goose is, I think, a kind of pan-Northern European species, more or less. But they don't nest 
in Ireland. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, even the, well, like the, your National Geographic adventure really demonstrated is that they nest in very, very northerly and inaccessible to at least Gerald of Wales locations. And so the idea that you would need to kind of try to understand their, how they generated when they're so numerous on the shorelines of Ireland, I guess, I, that's kind of interesting that he wants to kind of explain it. And he uses it through a technique that biologists also use, but he uses it in a kind of very, uh, a way that's very misleading, like, you know, homology using visual similarity, the color scheme and the black and the white and the shape of the egg and everything to try to kind of tie these two species together. And it just turns out to be as, uh, you know, uh, as as marvelous and incorrect as, as any uh, the- theory of generation. Then it gets into the bestiary tradition and whether Gerald is tapping into, I mean, I think he is tapping into an older tradition. I don't think he's inventing anything. I think he's writing down um, an older tradition. It's often cited as the kind of first, you know, canonical account of the barnacle goose story, which has a very, very long afterlife. Um, But it gets sucked into the bestiary tradition and without the rest of Gerald's context and um, and permeates these amazing and sometimes very very deluxe 13th century bestiaries, which I know you've you've referred to quite often in this yeah. podcast, haven't you? But the barnacles often is the ignored chapter. I don't know why, but people just are not jacked on barnacles. I think the explanation that is usually presented about sort of the persistence of the legend has to do with the, the fact that these are migrating birds. And that therefore, you know, well, they, they're not observing them nesting. So, but, you know, there's there are many migratory birds. They were certainly aware that birds migrate in, to some degree. And I was just rereading my Edward Topsell, my favorite 17th century source, really 16th century from his, uh, from his origins, and to see what he had to say about the barnacle. And he has a note that the Dutch have observed these birds nesting. But then he says, that doesn't mean that they can't come from barnacles, too, because mice come from spontaneous generation, but then <laughs> proceed to have babies with other mice. So it's as though even in the face of the discovery of the nesting barnacle goose, you know, the legend must persist in, in ways that suggest that it's it goes beyond yep. the fact that you couldn't observe them nesting. And I wonder, it's got to be that that similarity in shape the, and the bizarreness of the gooseneck barnacle so. shape. But then there, there's even, um, you know, medieval people like Albertus Magnus, he's like, well, thumbs down, you know, thumbs down to the goose barnacle connection. He just doesn't believe it at all. And neither does the remarkable kind of Holy Roman Emperor and ornithologist Frederick II, who, whose passion for all things ornithological drove him, he says, to send a mission up to the Arctic to try to locate the nests of these creatures. And they, you know, found no evidence that there is a connection between the barnacle and the barnacle goose. And that's interesting too, that there are people even in the 13th century who, whose primary concern is, I think, the animal rather than say the moral or the cultural or the anagogical or whatever, and who are trying to use their senses, <laughs> common senses, <laughs> uh, as much as anything, to um, to understand what's going on with these creatures. Are there earlier sources than Gerald that attest to this story, or is his really the first time that we well, hear? Well, the Exeter Riddle Book. So this absolutely fascinating 10th century Old English compilation of poetry 
called the Exeter book includes, I can't remember how many riddles, like 90 or a hundred riddles, something like that. Mm. And it has a barnacle uh, goose riddle and it alludes to elements of the story sort of, you know, describing, I mean, I could read the riddle in fact, would that be helpful? And then you can hear the riddle because it, it does can, in a way, the riddle points yeah. us to a much earlier source um, for Gerald's story. Let's do right, that. Bear with, I need to find the exit of riddle now. Okay. <sighs> riddle me this. My nose was in a tight spot, an eye beneath the water, underflowed by the flood, sunk deep into the ocean waves, and in the sea grew covered with waves from above, my body touching a floating piece of wood. I had a living spirit when I came out of the embrace of water and wood in a black garment. Some of my trappings were white. Then the air lifted me, living up, wind from the water, then carried me far over the seal's bath. Say what I am called. The riddle um, has this idea. Uh, it's kind of a, a very beautiful and poetic description of the barnacle about its nose being in a tight spot and being underwater and in this intertidal zone with the, you know, being underflowed by the flood. Isn't that beautiful? Then attached, adhering to a floating piece of wood. And then it, it talks about emerging from the water, the air lifting me up, living up wind from the water and then carrying me far over the seal's bath, which is, you know, very, very uh, beautiful. And if you already know that it's trying, that the answer to this riddle is the barnacle goose, it is a very beautiful and compelling poem. But if you read it without knowing that, I think you'd find it extremely annoying because you'd have to know the story as Gerald, you know, explained it 150 or whatever years later in order to be able to kind of decode it. So I wonder if this isn't actually some kind of oral tradition that's floating around in the British Isles before the Norman invasion. I mean, I think absolutely. I think that I don't think Gerald is making this up. I think he's, mm -hmm. if anything, writing down stuff that he encountered or heard sort of codifying it in a way, just like the Exeter Riddle book does. And I think the idea that the, that, that it's a, a riddle presupposes that the audience for the riddle knows the lore of the barnacle goose mm -hmm. pretty well, you know. Mm -hmm. But then it's I don't know that it's entirely confined to the British Isles either, because there are some really fascinating reasonably early representations of the barnacle goose tree as a as an iconography in in Spanish sources. There's one in um, a manuscript known as the Rhoda Bible from the late 11th century, which just has a kind of wonderful image of the rivers that are described in Genesis with personifications of the of the rivers and then with a barnacle tree growing next to one of them. And that's quite interesting because the, you know, the gooseneck barnacle, I mean, it certainly is now and I'm pretty sure we'll find it was then a, a, a delectable food source mm. <laughs> for coastal dwelling peoples. Are there two different explanations or traditions? The, the riddle in the Exeter book you mentioned that sort of the the nose being below the waves, which means in a way, if you look at the barnacle, uh, the gooseneck barnacle, I mean, it looks like a goose because it looks like the neck of a goose and the head of a goose, which would mean the nose under mm. the waves would make sense. But then in some of the slightly later accounts, 
what what was the nose becomes sort of the egg, right? In other words, so like it's a branch with an egg at the end that then hatches the goose, which is different than saying, look, the whole thing is a goose. That's its nose. Because otherwise, baby geese are hatching from the noses of the, I don't know, like it just, it seems like there's two different, <laughs> either two different traditions or the Exeter book is the earlier, in other words, when we see the emergence of the tradition, it's that homologous shape, right? Like it looks like a goose. So maybe one day it just flies. And then the later tradition is like, yeah. no, no, no. It has to be some kind of, you know, we have to have a kind of a natural history in which the goose is born from the barnacle goose. And where would that come from? Well, obviously it's an egg on the end of a stalk, which is not what you see. <laughs> I mean, it's also just, if you just imagine any kind of shoreline with um, seabirds milling around the odd barnacle goose, but eating only vegetarian foods or whatever. But, you know, if you saw them in the same context, which is, you know, plausible, probable, then you might, your your idea that there's a visual similarity might take on a kind of causal <laughs> kind of character um, looking at them together. But I agree that it doesn't make a great deal of sense. And Albertus Magnus, you know, really doesn't buy it. And um, Frederick II... Uh, really uh, also doesn't. I mean, I can read you a little bit of what Frederick says if you want, because I think that's it's quite fun hearing his, um, mm -hmm. you know, the way that he uses evidence. So he, he, re he recites the curious popular tradition that the, that the barnacle goose springs from dead trees. Um, and then he says, we've made prolonged research into the origin and truth of this legend and even spent, sent special envoys to the north with order to bring back specimens of these mythical timbers for our inspection. When we examined them, we did observe shell-like formations clinging to the rotten wood, but these bore no resemblance to the avian body. We therefore doubt the truth of this legend and the, in the absence of corroborative evidence. And he says then, too, that um, he thinks that the superstition arose from the fact that barnacle geese breed in such remote latitudes that men in ignorance of their real nesting places invented this explanation. Mm. So he not only kind of slams the legend, he also comes up with, I think, a plausible explanation for how it came about. How he had time to do this and be emperor. Like I am struggling just to, you know, be an academic administrator and a university teacher at the same time. Like how Frederick managed to be a, you know, noteworthy ornithologist and Holy Roman Empire. Chapeau. He, exactly. Uh, for, for our listeners, Frederick II was a uh, uh, features very big in our Hawks episode, um, in which he appeared as a, you know, a writer, you know exclusively obsessed with hawks, but that is not true. He is clearly an ornithologist in addition to all, everything else. He may be actually interested in geese because you can use your hawks to take them down. <laughs> you know? That's true. <laughs> I mean, it, it, they, may, they may factor together with a very uh, hawk-centric. <laughs> so I'm, you know, kind of wonder, I'm kind of wondering from an art historical perspective. Like I'm looking at a bunch of these images of the barnacle tree. It's quite zoosical. It has these wonderful sort of variants from a cute little sprout with these baby geese hanging off it, and the parent geese underneath, to these very convincing looking scientific woodcuts and, and engravings from the, you know, early modern 
that show these sort of seed pods almost that open up and reveal the goose inside. But a tree growing by the water is rather a different thing from a log floating in the water. And I can only think of one other animal that apparently grows on trees in the medieval tradition, and that's the tartary vegetable lamb, which is a lamb that grows from a plant. Specifically, the plant attaches to its navel. <laughs> what? <laughs> but, like, yeah. We need an episode. Um, but I'm thinking... We need an episode on the Tartary lamb. You're yes. talking about the wrong thing here. You know, even I'm convinced that the Tartary lamb, although maybe the Tartary lamb and the barnacle might be rather delicious together, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thinking it's kind of like the medieval version of a impossible burger because you can eat it during Lent because it grew on a plant. So it, this isn't just about barnacles and geese. It's also about plants. Yeah, although, I mean, he's not that interested. I mean, he's interested in them as substrate. And in the text, it describes how they adhere to driftwood, you know, bits of floating wood in the water, which is true. I mean, gooseneck barnacles can congregate on floating flotsam and jetsam. I think some species more than others do that. Some prefer rocky substrates or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he kind of recognizes that, but the illustration, I think what he, and he's, what he's trying to do, I think pictorially is kind of be able to show the barnacle and the bird and the sea all together in a kind of, um, in a kind of neat composition. But again, I don't know how innovative Gerald is being with that, because if we look at the, the, the barnacle tree that's in the road Bible, it's kind of the same compositional idea. Only in this case, there are little birds that are, Clip, have kind of clipped themselves onto the tree and I guess are waiting to drop off into the water. And then in the water, there are some um, uh, some other birds uh, swimming around. They don't look like barnacle geese, though, at all. Like they're, you know, this image, the, the one in the road Bible is completely disinterested in in the kind of ornith- ornithology. And, mm-hmm. and there's another, I mean, there's another Spanish example, too, that I think is really... Um, is really fascinating, but it's from a quite a, quite a damaged wall painting made in about twelve hundred. Uh, it's now um, detached and and in a museum, but it shows quite you know kind of similar thing with juxtaposed kind of kind of crazily with an image of um, Christ coming out of a cloud and some other kind of like a wy- I guess a wyvern or something like that. Hmm. But you know the idea I guess is that these are kind of wonders and they have a kind of antiquity. And that they might go back to a kind of Edenic moment or a moment of creation, I think, is quite thought provoking, especially bearing in mind their great antiquity as a species. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think that may be the kind of level of arcane detail that might appeal only to the most diehard barnacle enthusiast. But there, <laughs> you know. There is a plant, a sort of a plant connection, because that image is, is reproduced in Gerard's herbal in the 16th century, right? Like, which is a you know, so it, it's an herbal. It appears in an herbal. The barnacle uh, appears then in both the uh, the natural history, you know, the, the yeah, animal text, but also in the plant text. It's true, but I think in so Gerald the her the so we're talking about a kind of woodcut of a, a in a herbal that was um, is quite an early and remarkable uh, resource, 
And it, it does have some formal similarities to, say, Gerald's um, illustration and to yeah, the bestiary yeah. illustration, but it doesn't have any leaves. It, and um, in a way, the kind of, I, I mean, I think it doesn't anyway. What it shows is like very, I think, kind of quite carefully observed gooseneck barnacles with their stalks. But then instead of their legs emerging um, for feeding, little bird-like creatures with heads <laughs> start mm. popping out of of the barnacle as it unfurls and so I don't know I think I think he's sort of like maybe more troubled by or more perplexed by the relationship between the plant and the animal in in his herbal and yet he it's in a herbal so maybe that maybe I'm maybe I'm just talking myself out of uh, quite a good uh, explanation <laughs> <laughs> there is a kind of codependency and interdependency and flow between the plant and the animal and the organic and the inorganic that um, I think actually plays into maybe a medieval interest in, maybe put it this way, they're interested in things that transgress the boundaries, you know? They did have these ideas, you know, because, you know, they write about, you know, treatises about animals and, and others about minerals and, and encyclopedists separate them into different chapters. They obviously have some kind of clear thinking about what is a plant and what is an animal and what is a mineral. And yet they're yeah, really fascinated I you know, by yeah, crisscrossing. Well, it's interesting that the name you know, that we are in this episode talking about the, the barnacle or the goose or the goose barnacle or the barnacle goose or the goose neck barnacle, we kind of want to get those terms all in there together. But the sources that we're looking at will just use the term barnacle without any like qualifications. So the bird is a barnacle. The, you know, the thing growing in the water is a barnacle, right? Uh, you know, like, not yeah. a, it's not a barnacle goose. It's not a goose barnacle. It's just a barnacle. And they're the same word, which is, it's just fascinating, the kind of presumption of uh, overlap, you know, which we constantly yeah. try to negotiate and just the way that we're, we, we try to talk about that. But the name is preserved in the Latin I mean, name for barnacle, I... right? Like the Latin name for the goose barnacle has the Latin word goose making in it. <laughs> Is that right? So Linnaeus was uh, not immune to this story. Yeah, it's uh, anatifera yeah. well, or ansarifera. One of the things I, I think is kind of fascinating, and I mean, I'm interested to know what you think about it, is um, one of the problems that this legend tries to address is where do barnacle geese come from? Uh, you know, in the absence of being able to go to their nesting territories in the far north and see them. But there's another problem that, you know, obtained in um, amongst biologists, you know, really until the, I don't mean early 19th century, 1820s, 1830s, which is actually where do the barnacles come from? Yeah. You know, yeah. How, do how are barnacles generated? And, you know, in terms of a kind of Linnaean taxonomy, to what class does the barnacle belong? And for, you know, for a long time, really until until about 1830, the idea was that they should be classified with mollusks rather than with arthropods like um, crabs and lobsters. And part of that was about not really understanding where the barnacle came from. And so some, you know, very careful observations of their eggs and how their, you know, nymphs form and evolve into the creature that then glues its head to a rock and grows a bony platy shell and then uses its legs to catch its food you know that always a kind of process of quite careful observation but relative you know relatively recently 
And so, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how interesting that is for any but the most diehard Barnacle fan. But it does seem to me like one of the problems is how, you know, where does the Barnacle come from? And also, how do they reproduce? Which uh, is another one of nature's great and compelling mysteries. Um, and part of the answer to that is that they have the longest um, penis to body ratio, I think, in the animal kingdom, because they need to use they need to reach quite long distances. They have these um, unnervingly long, thin penises that uh, kind of, you know, sort of like have a kind of prehensile. Like if you were upset by the Nat Geo documentary about the barnacle goose, I'm not sure you should really seek out footage of mating barnacles. Um, <laughs> well, and this also brings me to, okay, this is going to be art, art historian geeking out. So Ian, put on your seatbelt. As we were talking about those trees, and I was looking at the images of the barnacle trees, I really couldn't help thinking of another reproductive tree motif from medieval art, which is the penis tree. And it's a very, very famous, often reproduced image, because it is a penis tree, of a nun picking penises from a tree. There's also, I think, a sculptural version of this in Italy on a public fountain. And I'm wondering if there's some connection or if it's just coincidental. So are you suggesting that the barnacle goose tree is, or that the barnacle goose itself is just a, a sort of a euphemism for the other thing that the gooseneck barnacle looks like? You know, it had crossed my dirty little mind that that might be the case. Okay. Well, but the thing is, I mean, honestly, there is something very vulvic about barnacles as well. I, you know, like there's, they have a, a vulvic dimension as well as a, a phallic one. I think the, the organisms themselves are hermaphrodites, right? They're both male and female. Yeah. They are. And they look like it too, you know? I think there's something for everyone in a barnacle. <laughs> <laughs> oh and who can't love a creature that glues itself to a rock and then feeds itself with its legs for its entire life, right? So I, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, some, of the, some of the early modern sources to see whether the language mm. or whether like the, the moves that are being done there are similar or whether this is uh, maybe a different product. So there's an example from Boise's description of Scotland where he you know, talks about this parson who is a student of wonders, as they all were, right? And the quotation goes like this. When he was pulling up some driftwood and saw that seashells were clinging to it from one end to the other, he was surprised by the unusual nature of the thing and out of a zeal to understand it, opened them up. So he's like going into the barnacles, whereupon he was more amazed than ever, for within them he discovered not sea creatures, but rather birds of a size similar to the shells that contained them. Small shells contain birds of a proportionally small size. And quickly he ran to me, whom he knew to be gripped with a great curiosity for investigating such like matters and revealed the entire thing. So like, this is somebody who's actually dissecting a gooseneck barnacle and discovering a bird inside. Do we have medieval accounts that do this? I could almost see that though. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to, I I don't want to be too categorical. Not that I have found. Okay. but. You know, but this desire that, that it, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, completely fascinating. What do you think they were seeing, though? Because, like, if you were to dissect a barnacle, 
you just get this, yeah, they're sort of slightly formless and more, there's, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm just lacking in imagination. I find it really hard to see a bird in the kind of barnacle augury, you know? <laughs> I wonder if but it's there like are the, the little legs. They're, so, yeah, the li- they're sort of feathery. Yeah. The, um. So that you think it's like the feathers? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the filter feet. The, the legs filters. look like um like feathers. Yeah. Okay. Or or in a way, right? Like this parson, he he was already expect he was sort of expecting to find a bird, right? In a way, uh, we talked about this when we did our episode on crimson and the the first microscopic account of the 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 cochineal beetle in which. Leeuwenhoek, this big famous microscope guy, looked at them under a microscope and said, no, they're, you know, these are clearly berries, because that's what he was expecting to see. And they had to go back to him and say, try again, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, they're actually animals. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like, if you're mm-hmm. under the pressure of the yeah. story, you expect to see, you, you see what you expect to see, even if you're being a naturalist and dissecting the, the thing. I think that's really, I think that that's really, um, really compelling. So the next time you go and out there, uh, Alex, I I think you should first of all you should definitely eat one to see. I mean, you you just have to know <laughs> whether they're delicious or not. But like while that's happening, you should you should uh, take it apart them. with the tried? idea that you're going to find feathers and see whether you do. <laughs> I mean, I guess one other thing that I think, just think is really you know kind of noteworthy in the visual and um, scientific history of the barnacle is what Darwin did with barnacles. Maybe that maybe this is too, maybe this is too 19th century for the three of us to venture. We've we've gone not there necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But not to Darwin. So when Darwin was on the Beagle, he I mean this is really it was a really wonderful book by Rebecca Stott called um, Darwin and the Barnacle or something like that. And she tells this whole story of how Darwin's study of barnacles helped to inform his theory of natural selection and the origin of species. I mean, he wrote two big books about barnacles. And when he was on the Beagle, he observed a creature that to him looked like a barnacle, but didn't have a shell and burrowed into a conch. And that kind of, when he got back to Kent, I guess, he engaged in a kind of international correspondence with other barnacle enthusiasts trying to gather together as many barnacles as he could to in order to kind of understand the diffusion of the species and it helped i think as he as he studied the barnacle to give him a kind of real world example of what he then you know kind of published as his theory of natural selection and the origin of species i mean there's some beautiful representations of barnacles in in darwin's um text unfortunately darwin i was unaware of the relationship between the barnacle and the barnacle goose and he leaves this completely out an unconscionable oversight on his part, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it kind of fascinating that in the end, barnacles proved to be one of the major case studies that helped to formulate this world-changing theory of natural selection. I mean, he he couldn't have been ignoring, actually ignoring the story because it's built into the Latin names for these animals, which come from <laughs> Linnaeus, right? So like, he's got to be aware of it in some way. He's deliberately excluding it. But the fact that he's concentrating, he's but deciding he's to choose just, barnacles yeah. as opposed to other organisms. I mean, they are they do occupy, you know, a place in that uh, discussion, sort of evolving discussion about spontaneous generation or about the nature of generation itself, which I think is Darwin's, you know, that that's his 
that's his field, right? Is the nature of generation. But he's approaching that from a from a different perspective. But he's going to study in some ways the same organisms that were used for different ideas about generation. Yeah, and and he um and he uses the you know careful visual analysis of his specimens in order to make deductions about how they are generated mm-hmm. in in a way that is similar to but perhaps less systematic than you know a Gerald of Wales who is using visual similarity to explain the connection between the barnacle and the barnacle goose i feel like i'm learning a lot as well and it's also <laughs> like therapy because I very rarely am allowed to have an extended discussion of barnacles with people who are really interested in them also, (laughs) which I feel you both are. (laughs) I feel like every new beast that we encounter on this journey that we're on together, I I decide, oh no, that now is the coolest medieval beast because... I think we tend to imagine the Middle Ages and even the early modern as being very much, at least in Europe, about the human. It's the idea of humanism, for example, and Mm. it's the idea of a kind of theological world in which God makes man in his own image and sets him over all the beasts. But it turns out that medieval people were acutely aware of the complexity and mystery of of the animal world and were profoundly curious about it, which this story of Gerald of Wales exemplifies. He's relating this as a wonder, as a thing to be amazed about and and sort of a breathtaking facet of of the world that's out there. (laughs) <laughs> I'm struck by, I mean, there are some uh, animals that we've talked about where the received wisdom is just passed on in a way, kind of with like without commentary. But it's sort of fascinating that the barnacle, from every account that we have, it's as though it's being passed on, but also that the the writer wants to add something of their own to the story. You know, <laughs> whether... Without actually contradicting it, you know, without without saying, you know, except for, you know, even, I mean, I guess, you know, Frederick certainly contradicts it, right? But like, they all want to sort of say like, and here it is, and here's my take on that thing, which isn't always true. I mean, there's times when it's just, you know, received ideas uh, being passed on, but not for the barnacle. And everyone's got their hands in that, in those barnacles. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Maybe with like a, a, a like a chilled white wine and a squirt of lemon and maybe a little bit of garlic. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think she's warming up to this idea of eating. The... I don't know. Maybe, again, I think we need a major multi-million pound international research project. And in that context, I could see the whole team going to Portugal and you know, maybe cooking some barnacles on the beach, but it's only in that context that I would, ha- I would feel I would have to do it for science. All right. Yes. Uh, it's a team. Effort. Thank you very well, much for I this have time. To go. This has been amazing. <laughs> this is... uh, well, no, it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity and um, I've learned a lot as well about the tartary lamb. Right. You know, so yeah. massive thank you. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 